Father, having reconciled us and granted us peace in Jesus Christ, overcoming our greatest conflict, we pray that you'd equip us now from your word uh, to go and to model that gospel as we pursue peace with others. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about you, but I get tired of seeing those TV commercials and ads for law firms. Seems like they're everywhere. Once you kind of look for it, they're just, they're just everywhere. Uh, I get tired of seeing them. But one thing I do like about them is occasionally you get some really funny ones that you just have to chuckle at. Let me give you a few that I think are pretty funny. I love the one that says, good lawyers know the law, great lawyers know the judge. There were this one, buy one divorce, get the next half off. It's true. It's on there. Uh, or, I like this one, just because you did it doesn't mean you're guilty. Or, uh, or this one, this is probably my favorite. Injured or killed in an auto accident, call Sullivan Law Group. How are you going to do that if you were killed in an auto accident? You, you like that, buddy. All right. So you'll, you'll see a lot of advertisements like that. You'll see things like, uh, get even, uh, get what you deserve, you know, uh, protect your rights and so forth. One thing that you are never going to see on a law firm billboard uh, or TV commercial is the slogan, let us help you reconcile with your opponent. That is not going to get a lot of phone calls. The reason you're never going to see that on a law firm billboard is because that is not a natural response from anyone who has been harmed or offended by somebody else. Our default response isn't to make peace. And that's owing to what we talked about last week. The problem with our fallen sinful hearts. Our impulse when we're offended is to get even. It is not to forgive. It's not to make peace. That's coming right from the heart. And what I want to do this morning is, is just think about that together with you on how that works. If peacemaking is not our natural response to conflict, then what is? But more than that, once we identify our default response to conflict, how can we then begin to move toward a response that actually brings peace? So if you would, just grab that insert in your bulletin. I think you'll find this useful to follow along with what we're covering this morning. You'll see a little diagram here. This is uh, put out by Peacemaker Ministry. I didn't come up with this. But it's a very helpful way of thinking about really the three different ways uh, in which we respond in any given conflict. What Peacemaker Ministries calls the slippery slope of conflict. So three ways in which we respond whenever we encounter conflict. The first way is what we would call escape, or as Ken Sandy calls it, peace faking. Peace faking. Peace faking, he writes, happens when I care more about the appearance of peace than the reality of peace. Peace faking or escape is 
what happens when I care more about the appearance of peace than the reality of peace. Escape responses to conflict are focused on us. Escape responses to conflict are focused on us. What is easy and convenient for me, what makes me look good, what makes me feel good, what helps me to avoid hard and uncomfortable things. And there are really two main ways in which we tend to employ this escape method when we deal with conflict. Sometimes we try to escape conflict by just denying the reality of it. We pretend like, what, nothing happened. On the outside, we act like, you know, the penguins of Madagascar, probably younger people do, whenever they're doing something secret behind the scenes and the, the, the humans see them, smiling away, boys, smiling away. Like, don't look at this back here. They put the facade on the outside. We, we do that. We do the smile and wave thing with other people. We pretend like nothing's wrong. But then on the inside, we're saying things very different. On the outside, we're saying things like, oh, that didn't bother me. I wasn't offended by that. No, I didn't take that personal. There's no need to apologize. There's nothing to forgive. We say things. We smile. We act like nothing is wrong. But inside, we are deeply offended. And instead of turning the release valve, as it were, to, to let off all that pressure that's building because of that offense, we just, just bury it. And what we end up doing is we cultivate bitterness. We cultivate resentment to the other person. Oftentimes that's going to lead to slander or gossip. We're not going to say it to the other person's face, but we'll be glad to say it to somebody else about them. So we try to escape by just denying the reality of it. The other way we try to escape is by simply avoiding it altogether. Ignoring the problem. Yeah, I know it's there. I'm just going to put it out of mind. Storming off and slamming the door. Maybe we quit the job because of the conflict with the boss or with a co-worker. We hit the eject button on the friendship. This is... I'm not even going to deal with it. I'm just going to avoid it. Just, I can get another friend. Leaving and joining another church. Boy, that happens a lot. Instead of reconciling with a person at church, with maybe the, one of the pastors or one of the members, I'm just going to find out. There's plenty of other churches. There's like 50 around me. I can go pick anyone I want. I'm just going to leave this one. I'm going to go find another one. I'm just going to avoid dealing with the conflict where I'm at. Getting even worse, there's filing for divorce. Buy one divorce, get the other half off. That's not far off, is it? And of course, the most extreme form of su- is, is suicide. The most extreme form of escape is just ending it all. Permanently avoiding conflict. So escape is one of the ways that we sometimes try to deal with conflict. But there's, there's another way. On the other end of the spectrum, there's what we might call attack. Or what Ken Sandy refers to as peace-breaking. And here's how he defines it. Peace-breaking happens when someone is more interested in winning a conflict than in preserving a relationship. Say that again. Peace-breaking, the attack response, happens when somebody is more interested in winning the fight than in preserving the relationship. 
attack responses, they're focused on other people. Identifying what they did wrong. Blaming them. Expecting them to take all the responsibility. Expecting them to solve the conflict. Now, sometimes we attack by assaulting other people. And assault has a wide spectrum of severity, doesn't it? it ranging from the passive-aggressive attack that we do with other people, you know, all the way to murder. And it could be physical. We could certainly attack physically. Certainly as children, that's, it goes on more, I think, than it does with adults. Take the Lego, punch the arm. That's how we respond, right? But it doesn't have to be physical. I think for, for most adults, it's not usually physical. It's, it's what? It's verbal. Name-calling. Insults. Gossip is a form of attack. It's a verbal form of attack. It can be. Threats. Threatening people physically, maybe, but relationally. Threatening them financially. And in other ways. But assault is not the only way of attacking. There's also litigation. There's a reason that those law firms can afford those great big billboards and those TV ads is because people do pick up the phone and call those numbers whenever they encounter a conflict, whenever somebody offends them, mistreats them, denies them what is their due. And you know what? That's not a recent phenomenon. Sometimes I think, well, it's, it's, it's bigger today than it was back you know, in the New Testament times. Actually, there's a whole chapter in the Bible dedicated to the problem of Christians suing other Christians. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul addresses a a problem in the Corinthian church where members were taking other members to court to sort out their conflicts. And Paul's response is, stop suing each other. Imagine the sermon this morning is, okay folks, the main point of the sermon is stop suing one another. That's what he had to address. This is not a new problem. But you know what? Even if we don't go so far as to the actual courtroom, we often take it to the court of public opinion, don't we? We present our side of the fight to somebody else, maybe to another family member or to some friends or co-workers, church members. We kind of get people on our side and we try to persuade them of the guilt of the other person so they can then begin executing judgment against those people. They're not going to have a relationship with them. They're going to mistreat them. They're going to begin attacking them with that passive-aggressive gossiping and so on and so forth. You don't have to go to an actual courtroom. You can certainly do it in other ways. And none of that, here's the point, none of that resolves the conflict. We know that doesn't work. Because the person who goes to the next church is eventually going to have a conflict there. And what are they going to do? They're going to find another church. Eventually, they're going to come back all the way around. Or start their own church. But still, that's what we do. It's it's how we respond to conflict. And I think everybody has some default. I think everybody defaults to one of those two responses, or, or maybe a combination of the two. So as you look at this chart, you should ask yourself the question, what is my default response? Am I more of a peace faker or more of a peace breaker when it comes to encountering offenses and to conflict. If you don't know that, by the way, just ask your spouse. It's a good way to find out. 
Personally, I find myself oscillating between the two, depending on the offense, uh, depending on the occasion or the offender. I'll employ one of those two. But you know what? I do it. This is what I do. It's, this is the, the natural response. Whatever your default is, the one thing that both of those responses have in common is their inability to actually resolve the conflict. I use that word carefully, resolve the conflict, because let me tell you, they can certainly end a conflict, can't they? If you shoot the person who offends you, it is ending the conflict. Murder ends the conflict. If you take your own life, that ends the conflict. If you move and you never see that person again, you have nothing to do with them, you completely cut them off, you're not going to fight with them anymore. If the person is no longer there, it ends the conflict. But that is not a resolution to the conflict. Escaping and attacking, peace-faking, peace-breaking, those are the natural responses of a sinner's heart to conflict with other people. But look at the chart again. There's not just two ways of responding, there are three. There is a third way. And it is not a natural response, it is a supernatural response. It's supernatural because it requires the supernatural work of God's grace in our heart in order to pursue it. That's what we call peacemaking. And folks, peacemaking is by far the hardest response to pursue. But it is the only response that can actually resolve conflict. That can actually bring about true and lasting peace. And that's because it is the only response that brings the gospel to bear on the situation. The other two are anti-gospel responses. Peacemaking is the only one that brings gospel peace. So what does peacemaking entail? Well, Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker, has done a great job, I think, of distilling the, the biblical essentials of peacemaking into what they call the four G's. Now, um, the Peacemaker, we've got both books in the back, The Peacemaker and the smaller version, Resolving Everyday Conflict. They both use four G's. They're slightly different, so I'll give you both of them. The first is glorify God, uh, or as Resolving Everyday Conflict puts it, going higher in conflict. The second is get the log out of your own eye. That's self-explanatory. Or what uh, the other book says is get real. The third G is gently restore, or Gently engage. And then the fourth G is go and be reconciled. Uh, or get together. So that's how Peacemaker Ministries uh, distills it down in a memorable way. And if you find the four G's to be a helpful way of remembering those essentials of peacemaking, by all means use those. For whatever reason, it's probably my brain doesn't function well enough. I've always had a hard time remembering those four G's. I know that there's something there. I remember glorify God, but then the others, I just I, ah, I miss them. And I forget the fact that we're supposed to have four G's to begin with. Was it four A's or was it four? Here's what I've done. Maybe this is helpful for you. Maybe not. Whichever one's more helpful, use that one. I find it helpful to use an acrostic. 
And it, you can actually take the, the content of those four G's and you could rearrange it into the acrostic piece and you get it the very same thing. So if you look at your insert there, here's how I put it together. P-E-A-C-E. Uh, when you're in a conflict, you're, obviously there's going to be an absence of peace. You need to pursue peace. What does that entail? Here's uh, maybe a helpful way of remembering it. Number one, put the gospel first. Number two, evaluate the conflict. Number three, ask for forgiveness. Number four, confront with grace. And then number five, extend forgiveness. If we were to ask, how does God want us to resolve conflict? I, I think the answer would be those five things. Now just look at the sheet again. Okay, just, just take a look at those five things. Is any of that new for you? Is any of that something that you've never heard of in church before? Or that you've never heard this concept? This is, this is some serious new stuff coming out of, I don't know, years of, of uh, psychology and corporate. Uh, uh, this, these are just biblical principles. Forgiving other people. Forgiveness is nothing new for us. Putting the gospel first, that's not new. Asking for forgiveness, giving forgiveness. Confronting people graciously. These are not new things. These are not hard things to understand. They're very hard things to apply. But none of this is hard to get. And what I want to do over the next few weeks is just look at each of these in, in more detail. Kind of flesh out what it means to ask for forgiveness. How does that work? There's actually a lot to that that the Bible has to say. Or what does it mean to confront? How do we confront somebody else with their sin? You know, how do we forgive people? What does that look like? What does it mean? What does it mean? We're going to work through those things. And what I want to do this morning is begin with the first two from 1 Peter chapter 4. So if, you're, if you've got your Bibles, open up to 1 Peter chapter 4. And let's just begin with those, those first two points on how we begin to move toward peace in the midst of conflict. The first thing we need to do is to put the gospel first. We love pizza at our house, especially my wife's homemade pizza. But when we don't have time to make it, or if I'm watching the kids, it's Sam's Choice frozen pizza. I love me some Sam's Choice frozen pizza from Walmart. And I love the instructions on the box. I love the instructions that say uh, the first thing you got to do is what? Remove the pizza from the packaging. Think of the countless lives that have been saved by specifying that all-important order before you put the box in the oven, take the pizza out of the box. Put that in. I would love to meet the guy who had to be corrected on that and is responsible for this. Um, somebody missed that at some point. But there it is. It's a very important order. Remove it from the box before you put it in the oven. Some things are so basic we just kind of chuckle that people think we even need to be reminded of that. Well, the gospel isn't like that. It is certainly basic. It's the most basic part of our Christian faith. But we still need to be reminded of it. We need to have that basic instruction right there before you do anything else. Number one, 
put the gospel first. That's why we're beginning with it. The very first thing we need to do whenever we confront conflict is to put the gospel first. Just think for a second. Think with me at how radically different our conflicts would turn out if we entered them with a gospel-oriented mindset. We'd be thinking of how great our sin is whenever we confront conflict. Not first about other people's sins, but as Paul says when he talks about the gospel, I am the worst sinner that I know. The chief among sinners. We begin with our own faults and our own sin. We'd be thinking of how much we have been forgiven. We'd be thinking of how costly our forgiveness is. We'd be thinking about Jesus' self-sacrifice for us. We'd be thinking about Jesus' immense patience with us. We'd be thinking of how complete we are in Jesus. We would be resting in His unchangeable acceptance of us and our unchanging identity in Him that nothing and nobody can take away from us. Just think of how adopting that mindset at the outset of a conflict would radically change the way that we handle conflict for the better. And notice something. When we do that, none of that makes much of us, does it? Those things I just listed, none of that makes much of us. Like we're beginning with our sin. But it does make much of Jesus. Peace faking, peace breaking are all making much of us. Peace making is about making much of Jesus. And what He has done for us in the Gospel. The first question to ask when we encounter conflict is this. How can I glorify Jesus in this conflict? Fill in the blank. How can I glorify Jesus in this conflict? If you're like me, most of the time when you encounter conflict, where is the glory of Jesus in your thinking? It's not there. Whose glory are we thinking about preserving and displaying at all costs? Our glory. And it's right there in 1 Peter 4. So Peter opens this chapter by reminding us of how Christ suffered for us. That's how he ends chapter 3. That's how he begins chapter 4. And then he calls us to adopt the same mindset as we encounter suffering in our own lives. As we encounter offenses from other people. In the first part of this chapter, he's thinking about offenses from people outside the church. But he's going to bring that inside the church as he turns in verse 7 and begins, begins to give a series of exhortations to us as believers. Within the church, here's how we're to act. Look at how he wraps this up in verses 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace 
Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Why? In order that, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him, to Jesus, be long glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We know that suffering and conflict are still on Peter's radar when he says that because of what he says in verse 8. In verse 8, he talks about how our love for one another covers a multitude of sins. That is, sins against one another. So love each other, and as you do that, that's going to cover sins against one another. You're going to sin against each other. You're not just going to be offended from people who are non-Christians. Guess what? Christians do the same thing to each other. Whether it's outside the church or whether it's inside the church. There's going to be conflict. But, here's the point, here's the summary statement in 10 and 11. In everything, Peter says, even in conflict, the very first thing we are to pursue is the glory of Jesus Christ in the gospel. It's the first thing we do. In everything, bring glory to God through Jesus. And the place where the glory of Jesus is most clearly seen is in what he has done for us in the gospel. The very first thing we must do whenever we encounter conflict is to put the gospel first. That's the first thing. But that's not the only thing. The second thing we need to do is this. We need to begin by evaluating the conflict. So you probably saw the news this past weekend that the United States responded to Syria's use of chemical weapons by shooting some missiles and blowing up some of their chemical weapons depots, supposedly. Now, if you watched any of the news coverage or read any articles about it, you know that there's a pretty big discussion of people on both sides of whether that was an appropriate response to what happened in Syria. And the debate, I'm not going to go into the debate, Whatever you think is fine. But just notice this. The debate centered largely on how people evaluated the conflict. Everybody agreed the use of chemical weapons is wrong. But people differed on whether or not Syria's use of those weapons presented to us a military threat, a conflict that warranted that kind of military response. And so depending on how you evaluated the nature and the severity of that conflict, that determined what response you deemed appropriate. And that, that happens all the time. Next week it'll be something else. And here's the point. It's not just with nations. It's with individuals. With groups. Folks, not every conflict that we encounter is of equal significance. i got to say that again because it's so important. Not every conflict that we encounter is of equal significance. At the outset of a conflict, we need to take time to evaluate and to assess what's really going to go on in this conflict. What's really at stake in this conflict. And after we ask the the first question, how do we glorify Jesus by putting the gospel first? The very next question should be this. You ready? Here it is. If you get this question, it will transform How you approach conflict. You ready for it? It's a very basic question. Here it is. Fill in the blank. 
Is this worth fighting over? Is this worth fighting over? We need to ask that. You gotta evaluate it first, son. Is it worth fighting over? We need to ask that because the vast majority of the time, listen, I'm gonna show you where this is in the text in just a second. The vast majority of the time the answer is no. It is not worth fighting over. Listen to how Proverbs 17, 14 puts it. It says, Stop qu- uh, starting a quarrel is like breaching a dam, so drop the matter before a dispute breaks out. Now, this assumes somebody was offended. Pressure is building up behind that dam. Somebody has been offended. But he... It is better to avoid it, if possible, than to engage it and then release the floodwaters of conflict. If at all possible, Proverbs says, drop the matter before the dispute breaks out. Another way of putting it is with the language of Proverbs 19, verse 11. This is well worth memorizing. Listen to what it says. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Let me tell you what overlooking an offense isn't. It is not a form of escape. We are not avoiding the need to face the reality of how somebody has treated us when we overlook an offense. We're not pretending it didn't happen. What we're doing is we're accepting The reality of what happened and actively choosing to let it go. To not bring it up. Not to hold it against somebody. Not to put it in the back pocket for the next time it happens and to bring it out and use it against somebody. We're choosing actively to overlook it. God does not require that we stop and confront someone every time an offense comes our way. What that is, is called pride. Hypersensitivity is a form of pride. Protecting our glory. Even, even if it's a, even if it's an offense, we shouldn't be offended in that way. People shouldn't attack our honor. But what happens is whenever every time that happens, we have to, we have to fight back, we have to pursue the conflict, we have to engage the person, what we're really doing is we're really trying to preserve and protect our honor as most important. And the language of Proverbs 19.11 turns that on its head. Look at what it says. Proverbs 19, it's in your handout. Proverbs 19.11, it is his glory to overlook an offense. Think about that. It is his glory to overlook the offense. In some cases, it is actually more honorable to overlook an affront to your honor than to try and defend it. Overlooking an offense is a sign of wisdom and honor. And now First Peter 4, it is a sign of love. Look at verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly because or since love covers a multitude of sins. Peter's quoting Proverbs again. 
Proverbs 10, 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. And that's really what it comes down to. It really just boils down to love. What compelled Jesus to cover your sins? Answer, his sheer love. The more we grow in our love for Jesus, the more we will grow in our love for other people. And the more we grow in our love for other people, the more we will be willing to allow that love to cover sins against us whenever we're offended. But now here's, let's, let's pay close attention to what Peter says. Not a few sins here and there. Occasionally, maybe once a month or so, I'll cover the, but every other time I'm going to hammer it. No. Listen to what Peter says. Love covers how many sins? A what? A multitude of sins. And it's all compelled by gospel-oriented love. Or as Paul says in Ephesians 5, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. When I said the vast majority of conflicts can be avoided by not even engaging it. That's the reason I say that. A multitude of sins can be covered with love for other people. That's how we overlook an offense. Now, let me just say something about when we can and can't do that. I don't think this means that we can overlook any offense. Right? And that, that's kind of basic, you know. If it's adultery... If it's physical abuse, if it's words that just are extremely harmful, if we're dealing with somebody who is habitually sinning against us and offending us, then we have to move forward. If it's, if it's a major sin, we have to confront that. We have to go on to the next steps, as it were. If overlooking the offense is going to damage a relationship, if it's going to hurt the offender by not helping them see what they're doing, if it's going to hurt other people around us, if it's going to significantly dishonor Jesus, then we're going to have to confront that. We can't just overlook it. We have to pursue further steps. Some offenses you just can't overlook. But the vast majority we can. Which is why Peter says a multitude Most major conflicts that tear relationships apart begin with minor offenses that people are unwilling to overlook. Let me say that one more time. Most major conflicts that tear relationships apart begin with minor offenses that people were unwilling to overlook. So before you even engage the conflict, take time to evaluate it. Weigh the significance of the offense. Consider how engaging, and this is going to affect things like your family, your joy in Christ, your property, your finances, your safety, your friendships, look, your witness to the gospel. There is a lot at stake, not just in how we address conflict, but even in our decision to engage it. Before you do anything, stop and ask the question, is this really worth fighting over? 
that one little question will spare you more unresolved conflict than you can begin to imagine. If you can just answer it with a no. Now let me just say this as we close. Because I, I, I mean, we're the same. I know what you're thinking. Because I thought it this week too. When I say that the vast majority of, of offenses can be overlooked, that sounds naive. That seems idealistic. I am well aware that it only takes one offense to tear a relationship apart. I realize that may not be the number of offenses, it might be the severity of the offense or the offenses that does the most damage. I get that. Which is why there's not two points. There are five. Let me just say here and now, God's word equips us to handle those more egregious offenses. And we're going to get into that. We're going to get into that in the weeks to come. We're going to talk about how to ask for forgiveness, how to confront people with sin, how to extend forgiveness, how to go into the conflict when we just can't overlook it. We're going to talk about those things. But here's the point I want to leave us with, and it's this. We will never find peace in those next steps if we don't start with the first two. So take time this week to start with these two steps. Evaluate your conflicts. You're going to get offended a lot this week from a lot of different people. When that happens, stop, put the gospel first, and evaluate the conflict. Take time to ask, is this really worth fighting over? If I engage this person, am I more interested in preserving and displaying Jesus' glory or my glory? I promise you, just that alone, those two steps alone, will radically, radically change the way that you approach conflict for the better. Put the gospel first this week. Let's pray. Father, these are principles that make a lot of sense. These are not hard things to grasp, but they are very hard things, impossible things to apply without your help. And so as sure as the gospel provides us uh, the power to forgive our guilt and erase our shame, it also provides us the power to fight against sin and to push back our sinful tendencies to respond sinfully to conflict. We pray for gospel power this week to keep the gospel first and to be able to and joyful in overlooking offenses. Help us to model your love for us. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.